Well, last time we closed with the end of verse 5. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God is opposed to the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that He may exalt you at the proper time. Having cast all your anxiety on Him because He cares about you. And this morning, Peter begins the final ascent. He, he says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert, your adversary. The devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Be vigilant. Be, be aware. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, is prowling around like a, like a lion. And keeping in mind Peter's original audience who would understand and know that image of shepherds and sheepfolds and, the, and such, this image of a shepherd being on the lookout for this prowling lion circling the sheepfold for any stray, any strays, this lion is seeking someone to devour. And the old pulpit commentary uh, he wrote that uh, the word for devil means slanderer, means, means false accuser. And the writer, he said it like this, he is called a serpent to denote his subtlety, a lion to express his fierceness and strength. The words express the restless energy of the wicked one. He cannot touch those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Let me read that again to make sure that you heard me. The enemy cannot touch those who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. But the enemy walks about looking eagerly for any lost sheep that may have wandered from the fold. And it's interesting that Peter gives this imperative, this command, to be on the alert, considering all that we know about Peter. Peter knew the importance of being alert because at one time, Peter had done quite the opposite in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, if you remember, he asked Peter and the other disciples to watch and pray on the night of Jesus' arrest. And what did Peter and the disciples do? They, they drifted. They nodded off to sleep. However, he owns this moment of heartbreak in order to teach us the way to go. He's always thinking about the church and wanting to point the church toward Christ. And so Peter owns this mistake. He owns this moment of heartbreak. He recycles his pain, his shame, and in doing so, Peter is not defined by it. Peter says, resist him, the devil. Resist him firm in your faith. Resist him knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world. Resist the evil one. Stand firm. Stand firm in your faith, in your confidence. And, and the confidence which we have is, is not that confidence that some might have when, when he or she looks in the mirror in the morning and says, hey, they're gorgeous, you're going to have a great day. It's not that kind of confidence. It's confidence that comes from what Jesus has done on the cross. That's where we place our faith and our confidence. And Peter is saying... Don't turn tail and run. Remember Peter and the disciples in the guard when the authorities 
arrested Jesus and they took him to the high priest, Peter and the disciples, they fled. Peter is saying, don't follow that example. That's what he's implying. The devil, the, the adversary, Satan, old scratch, there's lots of names. Lots of names for one who many think is make-believe. You know, one of the greatest weapons that the devil has in his arsenal is the fact that a lot of folks don't believe either he or his influence is real. That's one of his greatest weapons. And there's a word I want to share with you from the Bible teacher Wayne Grudem. We've seen some of Dr. Grudem's writings over our time in 1 Peter. And, and Wayne Grudem, he shares a bit regarding resisting demonic influence. He writes... A survey of the results of demonic influence in the New Testament will indicate certain characteristics which a sober and watchful Christian may suspect to be caused, at least in part, by the devil or demons. Throughout the New Testament, we, we see bizarre or irrational behavior, especially in opposition to the gospel or Christians. In the New Testament, we see malicious slander and falsehooded speech. Increased bondage to self-destructive behavior. Uh, we see in the New Testament stubborn advocacy of false doctrine. In the New Testament, we see sudden and unexplained onslaughts of emotions such as fear and hatred and depression and anxiety, violence, anger, which, which are both contrary to God's will and inappropriate in one situation. And in the New Testament, we also see this a deep, a simply a deep spiritual unease, which might be called discernment of spiritual evil. Grudem goes on to say, Yet caution is appropriate here, for there is much evil in the world, which is not directly from Satan or demons, but simply from sin remaining in our hearts or in the lives of unbelievers around us. You know, when the Holy Spirit invades life, and when one is confronted with the reality of sin, and that one confesses his or her sin, admits sin, believes that Jesus is the Son of God, could pay the sin debt, that we all have by going to the cross, and, and that one confesses his or her sin and, and, trust and, and trust and belief in Jesus to the world. And at that moment of salvation, the Holy Spirit enters into life. That's reality. Alongside that reality is the reality that we have been given a Savior who addresses our sin, but we still deal with sin, and that's part of the relationship that we have with Jesus. He's Savior of the soul, but He's Lord of life, and it's in His Lordship where we see our sin being worked out until that day we either go to be with Him or we will see Him come to us. 
that sin, which we all deal with sin, and we will all deal with sin, even though we are saved. If, if you've trusted in what Jesus has done for you, then you're saved, but you are still, like me, you're still dealing with sin, and, and it's working itself out in our lives. And, and so Grudem is saying, sometimes as sin is remaining in our hearts, there's evil. And then he goes on to say, an excessive curiosity about the devil's workings is also harmful. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, he says that we are to be mature in our thinking, but we are to be babes in evil. Babes in evil. For instance, you've heard preachers say not to go out looking for the devil under every rock or behind every hedge. Um... But I want to tell you two encouraging things. I want you to remember these, write these down, and if you remember nothing else today, you, you need to remember these things. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, I want you to remind you of the truth that's there. Paul wrote, If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That's a promise of the Word on which we can stand. And then there's something else that we share, that we say, but I want to make sure that you know where it is in Scripture. If we're going to stand on the promise of God's Word, we need to know where it is in the Word. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13, this is what it says. Paul writes, In Him, Jesus, you, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation... Having also believed, you were sealed in Him with the Holy Spirit of promise. You were given, once you heard that message of salvation, when you believed it, you were given the Holy Spirit of the Lord at that moment of salvation. That's biblical. That's in there. We say we believe it, but now I'm reminding you where it is. Ephesians 1 verse 13. You've been sealed. Satan can't run the Lord off. He can't run the Lord off. Satan will, will mess with your head and your heart. He'll mess with my head and my heart. Satan will lie. Satan is an accuser. Satan will try to remind you and me of every bad thing we've ever done. Satan will try to get you to forget that you have victory over sin... Because Jesus has done the work that gives the victory. James chapter 4 verse 7 tells us, Submit to God, but resist the devil, and, and he will flee from you. He will flee from us. But it's, it's submitting to the Lord. Again, Satan can't run the Lord off. So how do we resist the devil? Well, in Ephesians 6, it's a well-known passage, Paul gives this imagery of a, of a soldier. He says, Be strong in the Lord and the strength of His might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. So does this mean we've got to go to the Army Navy store and find an old uh, suit of armor? No. But keep this image before you. Take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist on the evil day. Stand firm, having belted your waist with truth. So truth is a part of it. Having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is a part of it having strapped on your feet the preparation of the gospel of peace. The gospel is part of it. 
taking up the shield of faith, faith's a part of it, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And then Paul says, take up the helmet of, of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. So the Word of God is part of it. Hmm. So if we seek the strength of God, we're covered in truth, covered in righteousness, covered in the gospel, girded by faith, salvation, wielding the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. God's Word is our protection against the evil one. And our guide for living lives of righteousness, which will point others to the gospel while we await the return of our risen Savior. This Word, it's our protection but only if we ingest it. We, we can't just throw the book in a bag on our back and go our way. We have to devour it. We, we have to ingest it, and it will transform our heart and our, and our mind, and it will be the shield which the Holy Spirit will use to fight the war which is being waged by the enemy against our souls. When the devil tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness... How did Jesus counter the enemy's attack? When the enemy said, um, if you're the son of God, take, take these stones and turn them to bread. And, and, and Jesus said, it is written. He quoted scripture. It is written, you will not tempt the Lord your God. Man cannot live by bread alone. <laughs> it is written. Yes, Jesus used scripture. So Jesus is our model, and Jesus used Scripture to ward off the enemy. It's important that we know the Word. We know who we are in Christ. We know what we believe and why. My father and my mother, they, they brought my sister and me to church. And I was around church and the things of God my entire life. That heritage of faith has been essential for me. But friends, that's not the same as being in the Word daily. Being in the Word consistently, knowing what God's Word says. Peter says to be firm in our faith. Knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by brothers and sisters in the faith who are in the world. There is suffering in the world. And as I think about my experiences in suffering, I have to know, I have to remember that my brothers and sisters are experiencing the same, the same, Peter says, the same throughout the world. And that's a pretty sobering thought, especially in light of the fact that we've all felt, you've felt it, I've felt it, at one time or another, that, that we're catching the worst break ever. Oh my goodness, I can't believe this is the worst thing ever. No one's ever had to deal with it like this. Do you know that there are brothers and sisters dying for their faith across the world this morning? And Peter says these same experiences of suffering help us stand firm in our faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13 Paul writes, No temptation has overtaken you except something common to mankind. All temptations are common to mankind. And so it makes sense that, 
that suffering would be similar. And this shared experience of the body of Christ, this shared experience can enable us to resist the enemy. Together is better. That's the beauty of of being in the sheepfold together. We're We're not going to stray off. We help one another. And the phrase, the phrase describing these experiences, they are being accomplished. What does this mean? That's odd sounding. Well, the word for accomplish is the same, also means to perfect. To accomplish means to perfect. And so at the end of the day, at the end of the day, if we think about that our our suffering accomplishes or perfects, at the end of the day, that's going to change how we view suffering. Suffering has been a theme we've seen throughout 1 Peter. And, and, and a few weeks ago, we were in 1 Peter chapter 4, and we read chapter 4, verse 19. Let me, let me read that verse. Those also who suffer according to the will of God are to entrust their souls to a faithful creator in doing what is right. Entrusting the soul. Another word for entrusting is committing. And when we looked at that scripture, I shared with you what the Bible teacher Edmund Clowney wrote regarding that. He said the word for commit is used for making a deposit. The Hellenistic world, the Greek world of Peter's day, lacked our modern banking system. Someone undertaking a journey might deposit his funds with a neighbor while he was gone. So committing all the spoils of one's livelihood to a neighbor, that kind of commitment, that kind of entrustment, that's a big deal. And and we've seen this picture of entrusting before. During Jesus' crucifixion and death in Luke chapter 23, Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I entrust my spirit. Jesus is the model we are to follow in trusting the Father while suffering. And if Jesus is our model, He's our model in being able to combat the enemy with Scripture. He's our model in trusting the Father with our suffering. Then what does suffering accomplish? And Wayne Grudem, the Bible teacher, he tells us, Christians do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. Rather, they suffer according to God's will. And while this at first may seem harsh, for it implies that at times it is God's will that we suffer, upon reflection, no better comfort in suffering can be found than in this. It is God's good and perfect will. And then Grudem says this, For therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity and in its duration, a limit set and maintained by the God who is our Creator, our Savior, our Sustainer, our Father. And therein also lies the knowledge that this suffering is only for our good. As crazy as as hard as that is to, to, to comprehend, it's for our good. It's purifying us. It's drawing us closer to our Lord and making us more like Him 
in our lives. Peter writes in verse 10, he says, After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, the God who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, God will Himself perfect. He'll perfect you. He'll restore you. He'll complete you. He he will confirm you. He will secure you. He he will strengthen you. He will establish you. He He will ground you in Him. And then Peter says, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Uh, to the Lord, there, there's given dominion, power perfected, power complete, total sovereignty. The Lord is over all things. And, this, and this, this idea of forever and ever, in the original language, it's the same word, but it's different cases of usage. Hang with me for a second. When we see phrases like God Himself, or He Himself, this doubling does just that. It adds emphasis. This doubling adds emphasis. And so it makes sense when we see the word forever followed by ever. Think about the expanse of that reality. It's not just forever. It's forever and ever. So be it truly, or as Peter writes, amen. Amen. (laughs) There's an old Bible teacher named Ellicott. I like how he wrote this. He says, If His be the dominion, and He has called us to His glory, then what can we fear? I think it's Psalm 27 that says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Peter closes the letter in these last few verses. He says, Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand firm in it. Peter is saying Silvanus is, is bearing, carrying my brief letter to you. And Silvanus is, is assumed to be Silas, as in Paul and Silas. Silas, Silvanus is, is trustworthy. He's, he's faithful. For so Peter regards him. That's Peter's opinion. Peter would know how to evaluate a faithful brother wouldn't he? he? Peter hadn't always been faithful or trustworthy. Peter is exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. He, he's encouraging, he's comforting, he's bearing witness to the unconcealed graciousness of God. Jesus, that great final full revelation of God, the resurrected Jesus and the promise of resurrection for us, the promise of reconciliation the promise of eternal glory found only in Christ, the promise of being perfected, the promise of finally having that God-shaped void in our lives complete, strengthened, established, being found in the Father. Peter says, stand firm in it. And then Peter says, she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings... And so does my son Mark. We know from New Testament language 
that the term Babylon has been used consistently when pointing to Rome. Rome, a dangerous place for followers of, of Christ in the early church. And as Peter has encouraged his audience both then and now, from the beginning of the letter, to be good citizens, to respect authority. And as we see from this beginning of the letter, that, that the lot of his readers, they've been dispersed to other regions there in Asia. Peter wants to use cautious language in referring to the home church and referring to, to fellow believers who were still in Rome. The church chosen together with you. The church, the bride of Christ, what a privilege and blessing even in days, even in days of suffering. The church in Rome sends you greetings. And so, and so does Mark, my son, my spiritual son. Mark, perhaps the same Mark who, who wrote what we refer to as the second gospel, Mark, who would have been known in that region of Asia, wants to send a greeting of encouragement as well. It's good to have words of encouragement, isn't it? It's good to have words of encouragement passed along. I, I, I know I sure appreciate it when I get a greeting passed along to me from a brother or sister in Christ from long ago and far away. In our, in our times of driving service, we've had guests come who who have known me and they either may communicate with me directly or send word from someone whom they meet in the parking lot. And, and so it's a word of encouragement and we all need that. We all need that. Peter says, greet one another <laughs> with a kiss of love. In the pulpit commentary, I like how it's phrased. The practice seems to have been universal in early times. It's mentioned by ancient writers Rites and ceremonies may have changed, quote, according to the diversities of countries, times, and men's manners, end quote. The sacred duty of brotherly love remains unchanged forever. Think of the changes in our personal engagement since coronavirus. However, we're still a family. We're still a family. And that's the beauty of the church, whether we're outside or we're inside. That's the beauty of the church. Peter is telling us to stand firm in our faith. And it's a whole lot easier when we encourage one another. Did you know that your faith inspires me? Your lives and your trials, your witness enables me, encourages me to stand firm. And that's why we need the body. That's why God has given us the gift of the body of Christ, to encourage one another. Do you remember the prowling lion which we, which we saw in verse 8? That prowling lion. What, what about that one lamb that is off by him or herself? It's a whole lot easier for that prowling lion to pounce when that one lamb has wandered off or maybe has left in a frustrated desire to have one's own way. I'm going to take my toys and leave the sheepfold. And that's when the prowling lion strikes. Together is better. How does Peter close? Peace be to you all who are in Christ. Peace be to you all.
who were in Christ. Peter, Peter knew the value of peace found only in Jesus. He'd heard Jesus say in John chapter 14, Peace I leave you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled or fearful. Later on in John chapter 16, Peter would hear Jesus say, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world, you have tribulation. You will have trouble in the world. In the world, you will have suffering. But take courage. I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Jesus, God Himself, the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus has called you and me out through Himself to God's eternal glory. And we are called that way through the way of Christ, which is the only way. When Jesus came out of the tomb on Easter morning, Jesus defeated sin and death and hell. Satan, this, this prowling lion, was filled by Jesus, the Lion of Judah. Only because of Jesus can we stand firm.